Welcome, and thank you for joining us in today's teaching as we continue our study through the book of Revelation. Here is Pastor Greg. Revelation chapter 17, and we're going to just cover the first six verses of that chapter. Let's, uh, let's read it together. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of the names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. On her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. We have come now to this 17th chapter, and also we will be in the 18th chapter. Both of these chapters speak specifically about Babylon. I've titled this morning's message, The Fall of Religious Babylon. Now, Babylon in scripture is actually, it's a a city, it's it's an area that goes all the way back into the beginning, really, of the Bible. It goes back to the book of Genesis. We actually find that there are over, there's about 287 times that Babylon is mentioned throughout Scripture. As a matter of fact, the only other city that is mentioned more is Jerusalem itself. We find that Babylon is mentioned or referred to six times in the book of Revelation. Now, in your Bible, if you know that there are 66 books in the Bible, you have the book of Genesis, which is the book of beginnings, and you have the book of Revelation at the end, which ends all things. And there have been some that have said that Genesis and Revelation are the bookends around God's Word. Because the book of Revelation starts out with the beginnings. The book of Revelation is the end of all things. But everything in between has a flow and something that is running through it. And we find that with this Babylon that we see in Scripture that is mentioned quite often. When we start in the book of Genesis we see that God has a plan, really, for this world. And he starts out with a plan for the nation of Israel. But the book of Genesis is going to be completed in the book of Revelation. 
I've shared with you uh, already from chapter 14 that I really am a literalist when it comes to the book of Revelation. I'm not one that tries to spiritualize it, uh, to try and uh, just say that this is just an historical unfolding of the things of God, though there is history in it, and though there are symbols. But I don't believe that we should interpret the book of Revelation strictly in a symbolic way. We're just trying to, uh, uh, to make it seem like it's just something that is unfolding through history. My interpretation of Babylon is one of a literal interpretation. I do believe that the Babylon that we read about in the Old Testament is going to be the Babylon that we're going to see restored in the end times in the book of Revelation here that is spoken. There are a lot of people that struggle with that. And the reason they struggle with it is because, you know what, all, like the slides that I showed you a while back of some of the, the, the start of the rebuilding of Babylon, people look at that and they go, you know what, I can't see how this is going to come about. Uh, but you know what, people said that about Israel. When the interpreters used to read the scriptures, they would say, I can't see any way that the nation of Israel is going to make their way back after 2,000 years back into their land. They've been dispersed for all these years. This has to be something that is just symbolic or spiritual Israel. But in fact, we have seen that Israel has in fact come back into their land just as God's word has said. The commentator Henry Morris uh, wrote this uh, concerning Babylon And he is a literalist also, and I thought I would read to you what he says. He says, what is the explanation for this reluctance to believe that John meant Babylon when he wrote Babylon? Even at the time John was writing, Babylon was still a viable city with a substantial colony of Jews. The famous uh, Babylonian Talmud originated in or near there about 500 years after the time of Christ. And there was a significant Christian church that was there as well. At the very least, I would be confu- it would be confusing to John, the Apostle John, the first cent- and the first century readers as well, as to... Uh, as well as to later generations, for him to write so much about Babylon when he really meant Rome or some false church. There are people that interpret Babylon today is that it's really just speaking of the Roman Catholic Church. They also believe that it's just speaking of Rome. They believe that it's speaking of New York in the United States. There's been many interpretations when it comes to this issue of Babylon and what reference it is making too. I believe that Babylon is going to be a literal rebuilt Babylon that is going to also have some spiritual significance during the tribulation period. John Wolvard, another commentator, wrote this. He said, the best solution is to assign Babylon its literal significance of the city on the Euphrates by that name. And the reason for it, John Wolverd says, is he mentions 
the Euphrates River in the book of Revelation in chapter 9 verse 14 and chapter 16 verse 12. He mentions the Euphrates River and most commentators have no issue with being able to say, I believe he's talking about the literal Euphrates River. But they stumble when it comes to Babylon. He goes on to say that place names throughout the book of Revelation, we find that in starting in chapter 2 and chapter 3, speaking about the seven churches uh, in Asia there that most commentators have no issue saying those were seven literal churches that were uh, in Asia Minor at the time that John was writing this letter. He, he, he goes on to say the writer is very clear When it comes to the point of mentioning a particular place and then saying that it is spiritual, and he refers to Revelation chapter 11, excuse me, when uh, we read that it is spoken of uh, about Jerusalem, it says in the, uh, when the, the two witnesses there were killed on the streets of Jerusalem. It says, and the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, were also our Lord, where our, also our Lord was crucified. And so whenever John would make a specific reference to something that he was going to make it spiritual, he would always tell you that this is spiritual. And so John Wolverd finishes by saying, He says, a a literal city does not exclude further implications regarding political and religious systems connected with the city. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. That Babylon, though I believe it's a literal place, also has a religious system that is going to be connected to it during the tribulation period and also a political and economic system that will be also tied to Babylon. Now, last week, we finished chapter 16 of Revelation. We ended, really, we could say, the Great Tribulation. Uh, it, was, it, it, it took place when that last judgment, that last bowl was poured out upon this earth. When, if we're going to look at the book of Revelations chronologically then chapter 16 ends the seven-year tribulation period. Chapter 17 and 18 are what I've been referring to as parenthetical chapters. Remember that parenthetical chapters are when the narrative ceases for a moment, and then all of a sudden more information is given and it is inserted into the narrative. That's what a parenthetical chapter is. Chapter 17 and 18 moves us out of this chronological order. But if we wanted to really pick up the chronological order, we'd have to go to chapter 19 of Revelation. So when you read yourself, the book of Revelation, know that you can't just read it straight through and that everything is just going in order as it's coming about. Chapter 17 and 18, because they're parenthetical, we can actually take them back to the beginning of the tribulation period. Remember, it's a seven-year period of time that is coming upon this earth. And so this Babylon or this mystery Babylon is going to encompass really the whole of seven years. Chapter 17, uh, John is going to see a vision really of the religious Babylon 
uh, that is still, in John's time even, still something that was future. It's still future for us. In chapter 18, and we'll get to that in a couple of weeks, John sees the fall of the political and the economic city of Babylon. And that is another aspect of Babylon. It's one Babylon, but there's a religious aspect to it. And then there is also a political and economic aspect to Babylon. If you uh, turn in your Bibles to chapter 19 of Revelation, I want to read you in chronological order what is transpiring right now after chapter 16. We read in verse 1, After these things, John says, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they say, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who sat on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God for all of his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. This is now chronologically after that seventh bowl is poured out upon this earth. Babylon has now already been destroyed. In the church in heaven and the 24 elders, they're all praising God with hallelujahs that Babylon has come to its end. Now to a Jew, in his mind, everything about Babylon spoke of wickedness and idolatry and harlotry. Everything in a Jew's mind when they thought of Babylon was wickedness. And so just think of how a Jew reading really the book of Revelation today. Now that would sound to him when two chapters are committed and 287 verses throughout the Bible speaking about Babylon and its destruction and what God was going to do with this city. In chapters 17 and 18, John is given by an angel the details of the fall of Babylon. And the reason why I think that we have now got these two parenthetical chapters with more detail about it, because we've already learned in chapter 14 about the fall of Babylon, but now here in these two chapters, it's more details. And I believe it's for the purpose of being able to let us see what God's plan is for Babylon, wicked Babylon, and what is going to be the fall of this city. And I believe that it was important to the Jew, it's important for us to know also. We, in the first two chapter, or, two, or excuse me, in the first two verses of this chapter 17, we're going to see the angel's invitation to John to come and see the judgment of the great harlot. Look in your Bibles at verse 1 and 2. Then one of the seven angels 
who had the seven bowls, came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Uh, This angel is one of the angels that was in that group of seven that was pouring out those bowls of judgment upon this earth. This is one of those angels coming to John and now coming to tell him something of Babylon in more detail. He's going to tell him of the judgment that is going to come upon this city of Babylon. And what's interesting is verse 1 starts out by telling us that this judgment of Babylon is assured. It's going to happen. It's important in the perspective of God dealing with this city of Babylon. We're told that she sits on many waters, speaking about this harlot in reference to Babylon. She sits on many waters And verse 15 tells us what the waters are. Look in your Bibles. It says that the waters are peoples, they're multitudes, nations, and tongues. And so this false religion, I believe, that is going to be uh, taking place there in Babylon, it's going to preside over all the nations of the world. It's going to be really a, a place on this planet, a place on this earth, that is going to affect really the whole world. There, as I've already said, there are some who want to uh, make Babylon, they want to interpret Babylon as the Roman Catholic Church. And if you go on and you look at various commentators, you'll see, and they, they have this picture of the woman on the beast, and they, they have all these uh, things that they try to correlate with the Catholic Church. The only problem that I have with that is that it really limits, really, the extent of what is transpiring here with Babylon. I I believe it's really a narrow interpretation, really, because I believe that Babylon, if we're going to look at it as a whole, it actually is a a, a whole uh, bunch of religious uh, idolatry that has happened throughout all of history. I think it's on a greater scale than just relating it to the Roman Catholic Church that did not even exist at the time that John was writing this. I believe that the greater picture here is that this great harlot or this prostitute is really the uh, personification or personification is really the perfect example of spiritual fornication. It's the perfect example of spiritual idolatry that is really gone out into the whole world to deceive the world. And it really started back in the book of Genesis. You know, the word harlotry, the word prostitution, sexual immorality, spiritual fornication, and spiritual idolatry these are all descriptive words in Scripture that describe, really, a religious system. Uh, it, it describes people that have turned away from the living God and people that have followed after other gods. Arnold Frutenbaum, 
another commentator wrote this about this word prostitute. He says, to prostitute something is to take that which has a proper use and to turn it into an improper use. A prostitute takes sex which has a proper use and perverts it with an improper use, turning it into something that is illicit, causing fornication. In this case, the harlot represents religion, which has a proper use. And you, we know that the proper use is spoken of, uh, of religion in James 1.26, where it talks about what pure religion is. But here it says, but here it has been prostituted for improper use. Rather than it serving its rules, the false use of religion causes spiritual fornication The word fornication is both used of physical unfaithfulness and also of spiritual unfaithfulness. And so when we're reading all of these terms as we're going through chapter 17 here, we're talking about spiritual fornication. We're talking about this harlot representing a religion, a false religion that is really going to encompass all the peoples of this earth during the tribulation period. Verse 2 says that it will be the kings of the earth and the inhabitants of the earth that will be drawn into her harlotries, that they're going to both be made drunk with the wine of her fornication. You know, just like uh, wine intoxicates people, these kings and those who dwell on the earth are going to be, in a sense, intoxicated with this false religion during the tribulation period. If you've ever seen some of the false religions that are out there and how people get mesmerized by, by some of the weirdest things that are out there, can you imagine when the church is gone and removed from planet Earth? Can you imagine when all the stops are pulled out for Satan to come forth and for even this harlot of religion to come forth into this world, how people are going to buy it up. They're going to buy into it. When the church is raptured, and the beginning of the tribulation begins, I think that there's probably going to be a lot of people on this earth that are going to say, you know what, we're thrilled that these Christians are gone. Aren't you glad they're finally gone? Now, you know, they might be saying, now we can have our own church. Now we can do our own thing. And I believe that this world is going to change drastically when the church is removed. When there's no presence of God's spirit in his church on this earth, this whole earth is going to be a whole different place, completely governed and ran by Satan himself. We saw in chapter 13 that during the tribulation period, this world is going to have more of a one world religion. There will be other, I believe, religions that will still exist, but I believe it's going to come to a place where under uh, the false prophet, he is going to begin to demand that people on this earth, that they would worship the beast and worship him as God. We also 
read in chapter 13 that there's also going to come a time, and I believe during the middle of the tribulation period, it will come to full fruition that the government under the leading of the Antichrist, uh, being the political leader, that there's going to be a one-world government during the tribulation period. A one-world religion, a one-world government, and there's also going to be a one-world monetary system that is going to be enacted during the tribulation period, where if people refuse to take the mark of the beast, they will not be able to sell or buy Anything, And so they're going to, it's really going to show their allegiance to the beast when they take the mark. When we come to chapter 17, we have now come to Babylon. And Babylon probably being in full swing. The last half of the tribulation period. The history though of Babylon really goes back to the book of Genesis. In chapter 10, we know that Noah's grandson, Cush, that he begot Nimrod. And Nimrod began to uh, be a mighty one on the earth, we're told. And the beginning of the kingdom of his kingdom was Babel. We find that in, in chapter 10 of the book of Genesis. In chapter 11, we read that Nimrod, that he built a tower that would reach into the heavens... And that the people there, that they wanted to make a name for themselves. And then God saw, really, the rebellion of the people of this earth in Babylon there. He saw the rebellion, and he came down and confused their language, and they were scattered over the face of the earth. Now, Babylon was deeply entrenched in paganism, idolatry, and divination, these things made up Babylon back there at the Tower of Babel. When these peoples were dispersed over the world, when God confused their language, all of these practices, all of these false religions, all of these deities that they worshipped, they all went with them and they were scattered over this, this whole earth. Babylon came into being really long before Christianity. Think of that. It's that bookend that I was talking about. The book of Genesis and Babylon being right there in the 10th chapter of Genesis. The picture of wickedness and idolatry and fornication that was in this city. We know that Babylon had a high priestess, her name was Semiramis. She was the high priest, priestess of idol worship. And she gave birth to a son who she claimed was conceived miraculously. Interesting, isn't it? Uh, the son name was Tammuz, who was considered a savior of that day. It was also said that Tammuz was killed by a wild beast and then miraculously he was brought back to life. Baal or Belial was the local Canaanite name for the Babylonian Tammuz. 
And so we see that the worship of Baal came out of Babylon and all of these other deities that we read about in the Old Testament. I actually printed off uh, some of the uh, deities that we read about uh, in, the, in the Old Testament. Uh, I'll just give you a few of them. One of them is the uh, god called Gad. He was a uh, pan-Semitic deity of fortune and worshipped by many of the Hebrews during the Babylonian captivity. We have the, uh, uh, the worship of Ishtar, uh, which was also referred to as the queen of heaven. Ishtar was a goddess of love, fertility, sex, and war, and also had associations with life and death. She was worshipped throughout Mesopotamia, which was the area of Babylonia in the ancient Middle East. There's another god that was called Mene. Mene was a pan-Semitic god of destiny, worshipped by some Hebrews also during the Babylonian captivity. There was Marduk, uh, who was the uh, god of water, vegetation, and judgment, and magic. And it was known for his thunderbolts. He was also there from Babylon. Nebo was a Babylonian deity of wisdom and writing. Uh, Sukoth, Benoth, was the goddess of wisdom that was worshipped by the Sumerians in Babylon. And so... The list goes on. You have Belial and Baal that were also idols that were worshipped there in Babylon and probably others. This city was, was engulfed with idolatry and the worship of idols. And that's where we have taken that all the way now, all the way to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, Mystery Babylon that has continued It's been said that every false religion today can find its roots in Babylon. If you look at all the religions that are out there, and there are many. As a matter of fact, I went to one website that has a catalog of over 10,000 religious cults and religions that are around the world. 10,000 throughout our world. These all have their roots, and they go back to Babylon. They have their roots in that. Tammuz was that first Christ imposter. He was, if you want to say, that first Antichrist. And here we are reading about the destruction of Babylon in the book of Revelation. In uh, Israel's history... We read throughout the Old Testament many scriptures that Israel was being exhorted not to follow the gods that the heathen followed. We know that Moses himself, he told them, he told the children of Israel that when they come into the land, which the Lord God was given, given them, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations, There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire or one who practices witchcraft or a soothsayer or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer or one who conjures spells or a medium or a spiritist or one who calls up the dead. 
Here's Moses having to exhort the children of Israel. When you come into your land that God has given you, don't follow the pagan practices that are out there. He says, for all who will do these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. In Deuteronomy 31, verse 16, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, Moses, you will rest with your father, speaking about his death that was coming. And this people will rise after your death. They will rise and play the harlot with the gods of the foreigners and of the land where they go to be among them. And they will forsake me and break my covenants and I will ma- uh, and I have, that I have made with them. Israel. God's people wrestling between the living God and worshiping all the idolatry and all those things that were before them. And nothing has changed. And all of that has followed down through history. And now we've come to the book of Revelation. The book of Nahum, the prophet Nahum says, because of the multitudes of harlotries of the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries who sells nations through her harlotries, and families through her sorceries. This is nothing new. This this goes all the way back to Babylon, and it's going to find its place in the end time, in the the seven-year tribulation period. All through Israel's history, God warned them not to turn to these gods. Look in your Bibles at verse 3 of chapter 17. So he, speaking about the angel, carried me away in the spirit, carried John away in the spirit. And the only reference we have to this goes back to the first chapter of Revelation in verse 10, where John was caught up into the spirit. And really, some translations read he was in a trance. In other words, he was getting this image. He was getting this vision that was given to him by this angel. As he was caught away, we're told, into the wilderness or into this desert place that he might witness the harlot's fate. That's really what the uh, angel is about to show John, this harlot that was going to be destroyed. And I saw a woman, this harlot, that was sitting on a scarlet beast. That scarlet beast is a reference to the Antichrist, which was full of names of blasphemy having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and in scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of the abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. The first thing that John sees is this harlot sitting on a scarlet beast that has seven heads and ten horns. We're not going to talk about so much about the seven head and ten horns until next week. I want to focus upon this morning upon this woman sitting upon the beast. We can see, though, from this verse 3, 
we can see that there, there is a relationship here between the harlot, which is the religious system that is going to be happening during the tribulation, and the scarlet beast, which is really the political system and the, or the, uh, uh, this political or monetary system that is also going to be a part of Babylon during the tribulation period. There's this connection between the two. Here, this harlot is sitting on the beast, And it's not so much that she's the one that's ruling, because I think it's really the Antichrist himself that is going to be the one ruling. But I believe that the Antichrist is going to be supporting this false religion that is going to be taking place during this time. We're also told that this beast, that it was full of the names of blasphemy. Revelation in Revelation 13:1 we read when John was standing on the seashore of Patmos that island where he was exiled to it says that I saw a beast rising up out of the sea having seven heads and 10 horns and on his horn horns 10 crowns and on his head a blasphemous name Uh, which is, I believe, a reference to the actual character of the Antichrist. He has on his head this blasphemous name. In chapter 13, verse 5, we read, And the Antichrist was given a mouth that was speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months, or three and a half years, and then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell on the earth. Blasphemy against God can be uh, found in Scripture in a number of different ways. Uh, People can blaspheme God, and the Antichrist does this by blaspheming the name of God himself. He also blasphemes God by blaspheming the temple of God. He blasphemes those that are in heaven, those of us that are going to be raptured. He's going to blaspheme us. He's also going to blaspheme the Jews. He's going to blaspheme and does blaspheme the word of God. We saw last week that under the law of Moses... We find this in the book of Leviticus, that the penalty for blasphemy was what? Stoning. The people would be stoned, and we saw that the last plague poured out upon this earth are these 100-pound hailstones that are going to be poured out upon planet earth. And it's really, I believe, in that judgment for blasphemy. We read in chapter 16, verse 21, that God sent great hailstones upon men. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. Men are actually going to become even more angered towards the God of heaven. And they're actually going to blaspheme his name as these hailstones are coming down upon them. John sees also that this woman that is sitting on this scarlet-colored beast, 
this color of this beast even has a significance. I believe that the color scarlet actually speaks of the splendor, if we could say, of the Antichrist during this time. Remember, he's going to mesmerize people. People are going to look to him. He's going to be one that people are going to worship. They're going to, they're going to listen to his words. He's going to have the answers for this world. And he's going to draw this world in. Here's this woman, this religious system that is sitting upon this scarlet-covered beast. This purple also can speak of an economic or a political system that I believe that the Antichrist is going to hold. It speaks of royalty. Remember, it was that scarlet robe that they put upon Jesus before he went to the cross. Remember, they they said, you're a king, and they put that scarlet robe upon him. Here's this woman that is arrayed in scarlet linen, sitting upon a scarlet beast, speaking really in in a sense it shows like this royalty and this splendor that the beast has. But we know that that is really not the case. In verse 4, the woman that was arrayed in this fine clothing of purple and scarlet, She's also adorned with gold and with precious stones and pearls, having in her hand this golden cup that was full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Did you know that the word fornication is the Greek word pornea? We get our word porno or pornography from it. And so this sexual immorality that is being referenced here to, it's really speaking of, uh, of really a spiritual idolatry that is going to be taking place that is going to be rampant during the tribulation period. John sees this woman uh, in this fine linen, purple and scarlet, precious stones, which speaks really, I believe, of a religious system that probably is going to look very wealthy. It's going to look, it it might be like a, a commercialized church. We've seen a few of those in our day already. The commercialized church that's out there that has much. When we were in uh, Nigeria, it was very interesting to be in that country that is a third world country, full of poverty. But as we went and visited some of the churches, even ones that we were invited to, they had this, this aura about just having much. And as a matter of fact, the people and some of the leaders and the people that, that ministered in these churches, they dressed like, like some of the preachers that we might see, some of the televangelists that we see on TV. And they had these buildings that were set apart from a lot of the other smaller little churches. And the people of Nigeria were drawn to these churches by the droves. Thousands and thousands of people would go to these churches that had wealth, that had money. And they would compel the people to give. And then you would find these other little churches that just had nothing that were out there. There was this great divide between this commercial church and the church that had nothing and very little. And and so we saw firsthand this corruption of this commercial church. And God be the judge 
But I'll tell you that, you know, the people that were there, it was sad to see. As they were just drawn to that, really just in hopes, because this is the way they're being taught, a health and wealth type of doctrine, that this may be one of you. As a matter of fact, starting a church in Nigeria today is big business. You can go down the street and they're everywhere. There's more churches per capita there than in North Carolina here. If you can believe that, there's churches everywhere, little churches everywhere, because it's business. You can actually make a living off being a pastor. And you know what? Their hopes of the people is that, you know what? If we can get a church going, it'll bring in some income for us. And we might become one of these mega churches someday. And can you imagine what it'll be like during the tribulation period as this false religion is running rampant, this commercial church that is drawing people into it? We know that we also have in our day really another kind of God that is drawing people into it. It's really the God of fame. We have the God of pleasure and materialism, even as Shane was talking about that in the psalm this morning, that this world is being pulled into. People are seeing the movie stars and all the wealth and all the things that this world has to offer, and this world is wanting it. They're desiring it. And so when they find themselves in the truth, this is all going to fit. A commercial religion that is wealthy and looks very good on the outside. But in the inside, it's, 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 it's full of wickedness. This golden cup that this harlot has in her hand, it it also shows this appearance of royalty and wealth within this religious system. It has a a glorious outer appearance. The outer appearance of the cup looks good. But what's inside of it? Uh, What's inside of it is that it's full of abominations. It's full of the filthiness of her fornication. It's the deception that this religious system is going to do in drawing millions of people to her. You know, God hates hypocrisy. But you know where he hates hypocrisy even more? He hates it within the church. God hates hypocrisy within the church. James 1.27 tells us that pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. That's pure religion. But the religion that is going to be rampant during the tribulation period is going to be one of filthiness and abomination. John sees this cup full of these things. And I, and I have to believe that in John's mind, I mean, it was hard for John to see even. The abominations of this harlot, this Babylon that John would have known of. Babylon was in existence then in his day. He knew of its wickedness. Jeremiah prophesied concerning Babylon and the judgments that God was going to be upon it. And in chapter 51, verse 7, we read, Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand. 
that made all of the earth drunk. The nations drank her wine. Therefore, the nations are deranged. God is always, I believe, most concerned with what's on the inside. God always looks at your heart. God is always most concerned with what's going on inside of you more than he's concerned with the outside. Why? Because if the inside changes, if God has his way in your heart and changes you on the inside, then the outside will follow. But here, this woman with this golden cup, it looks real good on the outside, but it's full of abomination, filthiness on the inside. Jesus warned the scribes and the Pharisees of his day, the religious leaders, he says, you hypocrites. For you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, he says, first cleanse the inside of the cup and the dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. On this woman's head, we're told upon her forehead was a name that was written, Mystery, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. Notice that in this name that has given to her, this harlot, that she's the mother of harlots. Notice that harlots is plural, not singular, Because really, the mother of harlots, I believe, takes us all the way back to Genesis, to Babylon. And there have been many harlots. And as a matter of fact, this mother of harlots has a whole harem of harlots that has gone through all of history, all the way going into the book of Revelation, into the end times. She has many harlots, many religious systems that have deceived this world. That is the name that is written upon her head. And we're also told that she is drunk with the blood of the saints, with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, John says, I marveled with great amazement. He's seeing this and he's amazed at what he's seeing. He's he's astonished at what he is seeing here. Starting really with the blood of the two witnesses that were martyred in chapter 11 of Revelation, they were killed for their testimony of Jesus Christ. Then we read in chapter 13, verse 15, that all of the saints that refused to take the mark of the beast were killed by the false prophet and his army in the Antichrist. They were martyrs for Jesus Christ. Here's this woman that is drunk with the blood of the saints. This is all in the name of religion. Did you know that persecution amongst Christians uh, is probably the worst from religious groups? It's the religious groups of this world that actually do the most persecution against Christians. John Wolverd said, false religion is always the worst enemy of true religion. 
And I believe that that's true. Have you been following what's going on in our world in relationship to ISIS over there in Iraq? Uh, The Guardian newspaper reported uh, just a number of days ago, maybe you've seen this in the news, they're saying that ISIS went into one of the cities and told the Christian community in that city that you either convert to Islam or you pay a fee or you die. That, that's, what they, uh, that's, that's what they're doing there in the northern part of Iraq even now. This is how the Guardian newspaper reported. Last weekend, ISIS gave the city's Christians a stark choice. Convert to Islam, pay a religious tax, or face death. They said there is no place for Christians in this Islamic state. The Telegraph, another paper, reported Mosul's Christian community... One of the oldest in the world has shrunk rapidly in the years since the U.S.-led forces pushed Saddam Hussein from power. Before 2003, the city's Christians numbered some 60,000 people, but that number dropped to some 35,000 by June of this year. Another 10,000 fled Mosul after the militant-led offensive began sweeping across Iraq on June 9th of this year. Mosul's last 1,500 Christian families were reportedly robbed by ISIS as they left their checkpoints. That whole city, the Christians through persecution, through this false religion of Islam, have fled their city. Here, this religious system is going to cost the lives of those during the tribulation period, those that will refuse to follow after the beast, those that are not part of this one world religious system are going to pay a price. She's drunk with the blood of the saints during this period of tribulation. I believe that as we watch our news, just keep an eye. Even if you don't feel like it, I think it's healthy for us to watch what's going on in our world. The things that are transpiring right now, you watch Libya. You watching what's going on in Libya right now? We just uh, uh, had to evacuate another one of our embassies there, our last embassy. And they have told every, every uh, American to get out of Libya. Uh, look what's going on in Egypt. Look what's going on in Syria. Look what's going on in Iraq. Did you know that, that it's Iran that is supplying all of these missiles and everything to Hamas that are shooting into Israel? Then just read your Bibles. Read about Ezekiel 38 and 39. Read about the countries that are going to line up with Russia. Look at what Russia's doing up there right now. This world, the stage, I believe, is being set for what we are reading here. I, I, I don't know the day or the hour. I'm not calling out dates, but I'm simply saying when you look at these things that are transpiring in our world, look up. Beware of what's going on you because these things are, and, I, and I'm watching. I'm looking. And then pray for Israel. 
Pray for the nation of Israel because you know what? This is when it all comes down to it. It's it's the nation of Israel that God is going to be dealing with primarily during the tribulation period. He's going to save a remnant of his people. There's going to be Jew and Gentile saved, but God has a plan for Israel. And I believe the Bible is very clear on that point. And so this week, look for opportunity. There a great opportunity when it comes to end times events. As you hear people starting to talk about it, say things, Guy, aren't you worried about what you see going on? I mean, it, it, look for those opportunities, family members, people that are questioning what is going on in our world. That's an open door. Lord, give me the boldness to open my mouth to speak for you. That should be our prayer. Father, we just lift up, Lord, this day. And Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. That you would send us out of this place, Lord, out into this world, Lord, willing and ready to be used of you. Father, as you fill us with your spirit, your word says that you give us the power to be witnesses for you. And Lord, we believe, Lord, that you have done that. Empower us, Lord, that we might go out, that we might be bold in you to open our mouth for Jesus Christ. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed today's study. For more information on teachings, events, worship times, and location, please visit our website, ccfwinstonsalem.com. From Pastor Greg and all of us at Calvary Chapel Fellowship, thank you for listening and being part of our study through God's Word. Thank you.